Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to our Umlink listeners, and welcome to Energy Speaks Back, powered by Hark. My name is Paul Wett. I'm the founder of B2B Energy, and I'm your host. Weekly, I present to you experts from around the world, and today we are in the UK discussing sustainability. Our purpose, as always, is to provide a good understanding of energy management knowledge from around the world, which is available today for us to deliver savings that impact on our planet. Before we get into our interview today, I would like to recognize our sponsors, who are Umlink, who are taking the confusion out of energy management and sustainability, Clean Energy Revolution, for their knowledge and their networking in the renewable world, B2B Energy for the 11-week energy program and managing organizations' third largest expense, Hark Systems, renowned for their energy software, Alexis Energy for power management, led by Vision, LED and controls, Watts for electronics and EV transition, Carbon Black Global for their waste to energy initiatives. And lastly, our certificate partners, Esther Energy. Welcome to episode 64 of Energy Speaks Back, powered by Hark. My special guest today is an experienced strategic director working in the facility management, energy management, and corporate sustainability. He is a strong business development professional with a degree in mechanical engineering. So without any further ado, I give you Reed Cunningham. Good afternoon, Reed, and how are you today? Yep, very well, thanks, Paul. Good. And Reed, we met on the uh, the EMEC show a couple of weeks ago. We did. We did. It was a very fleeting meeting because I think I was running a bit late for talking at one of the stages. I had to dash away quite quickly. And and like all things, I I grabbed you, didn't I? And, you did. And said, <laughs> made, made sure you listened to what's happening in the energy industry. You certainly did. Yes. yes. Brilliant. So, Reid, give some. Um, I've only met you briefly. Um, it'd be really good to get some background to you as an individual and, and for our listeners today. So can you give us some background? Yeah, sure. Um, I uh, am a mechanical and electrical engineer by training, and I had started my career um, in a design consultancy, um, actually one that still exists, Cundall Johnson. Um, And I I found after a few years there um, and moving on to a a second, smaller M&E design consultancy, I I found... um, I, well, kind of witnessed buildings that we handed over maybe six or 12 months after we handed them over, um, tended to have all the BMS settings on manual <laughs> and the, the, um, they just weren't being operated quite like we had designed them. I'd intended you know, them to be operated. And at the time, coincidentally, the FM industry was starting to rise up. As I suppose it always existed, but it was becoming a bit more professionalized. This was in the early 90s, um, early to mid 90s. Um, and it, it made me kind of connect the two. I, I thought maybe the operation of buildings needs to become more professionalized, you know, um, not, not just the design and handover piece, but there was a performance gap between, yeah. you know, 
operational buildings and how they were intended to operate and actually how they were being operated. So I got kind of interested in that and I ended up doing um, an MSc in facilities management at uh, Strathclyde Uni, where they had a, um, a place called the Centre for Facilities Management. And interestingly, it was actually affiliated with the business school rather than the architecture or the engineering faculties, which was kind of intriguing. But they were aligning the accommodation and the environment in which a business operates as being more a business activity than actually a technical activity, which um, you know was an interesting sort of premise. Um, so following that, I found myself becoming involved in PFI contracts in the late 90s. Um, and that brought together my own experience of the construction industry, mechanical electrical design, but also what I was beginning to learn and understand about the FM sector and maintenance and life cycle. Um, so PFI came along at a very interesting time for, for me personally. And um, I took uh, the offer of employment with um, BAM, which at the time was called HBG, uh, a slightly different Dutch parent, which was subsequently bought by BAM. Um, and, and that presented a fantastic sort of decade when we were involved in some really exciting PFI projects and, and genuinely considering the design and the construction and the operation of projects to create the lowest sort of whole life cost you know, and, and therefore be offering the most competitive offers. Um, and we, we bid a lot of education projects, some healthcare and some law and order. Um, and, uh, you know, we were successful in many cases and um, those projects are still operating. Many of them probably still have 10 or more years to go, many of those contracts. Um, so BAM created BAM FM. I was one of the founding members of that company um, because that was the capability the company needed to then deliver these contracts that it was securing. Um, and, and then we had to diversify a little bit because the PFI industry started slowing down at about 2020 with a coalition government back then. Um, so we, we found the PFI opportunities were sort of few and far between. We diversified a little bit into what you might call traditional FM, shorter term contracts, and often a lot more mechanically, electrically, and mechanical electrical sort of focused. And at that point, we started focusing a little bit more on energy as a service to customers. Um, at the time, that was an economic um, question, I suppose. Energy was always expensive, so people were always interested in saving a little bit. And energy projects were promoted as um, economic benefits with a short payback. Um, but recently, and it's something we discussed briefly on the stand, Paul, was how a third dimension has come into effect, which is all about um, carbon reduction now. And the whole energy management piece has been suddenly, I think, accelerated and put into the limelight with this idea of carbon reduction. Um, and it's made the sector enormously interesting. Um, it's It's... A whole new dimension of consideration and in some cases the carbon reduction is coming even before an economic consideration uh, which is um, a really exciting place to be so but that, the, the eco side does follow doesn't it 
the economic side will follow if you get the carbon side right it's going to follow isn't it quite it certainly should and and what we're probably seeing and and i guess it's macroeconomics at its best and worst (laughs) is uh the, the 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 issue with energy prices over the last quarter you know it's been incredibly volatile and and i guess that's as a result of limited fossil fuels in the world um, and the extraction of fossil fuels either becoming harder or becoming more limited. It's coming from Russia. Um, Europe may or may not want that. And this, you know, we've got all the uh, global politics coming into play. And, and effectively, that puts the price of energy up and then the decarbonisation becomes more and more worthwhile. Interesting point right at the beginning of the things you were saying there, because I, I didn't allude to this on the stand, but my background is BMS. Um, so I worked for, uh, both trend and Satchwell. I'm, I've always worked in the service side. Um, so, um, when I was at trend was in the field services team and we were the first on call once the commissioning guys had left site. Um, they then left the system to the field services guys. And the first thing we would find was there was a specification. The system was designed to a specification. The clients moved in. Oh, we don't want cellular offices we want open plan oh we don't want open plan we want offices mm. yeah so straight away there's a difference straight away there's a there's a massive impact the, the, the design has been done for very alarm focused they want loads of alarms coming in well we don't need so there's a there is a massive difference between the the specification and what's been originally designed to what is really needed and for me, that's the low-hanging fruit straight away. Let's go in and address that first of all, make the savings. Sadly, it doesn't happen. I'm just quite refreshing to hear that you're focusing on that. But I always find that it, it's always left to the BMS guys to come along afterwards to identify that, not at client level, which is quite refreshing to hear that. I've never heard that before. Yeah, and I, th- I think at client level, um, there's there's a very wide range of experience at client level, um, and I think that's probably where the FM industry and the, the if you like I suppose you might call them the tier one FM contractors have kind of appeared from or, or what's driven their success. It's partly just because of you know in the eighties, nineties, and the noughties the kind of the idea of outsourcing headcount to contractors, but in fact, um, as buildings have become more and more complex and as the rules around, um, you know, the delivery services, compliance and um, employment, whilst those things become more and more onerous and, and complex, then I think it creates space for professionalism and contractors to come in and say, well, you know, we, 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 we've got such a good criti- or large critical mass, we can invest in getting these things right. And then we can sell that to customers who are going to benefit from it. Whereas the individual customers maybe don't have individually the the, the expertise or the the kind of critical mass to invest like that. So I think the tier one, and well, and I suppose it's a little bit, we use the car analogy an awful lot, don't we? And and, and it's a good analogy, but it's an analogy. I'm I'm always trying to find another one. (laughs) It's a good metaphor. (laughs) Cars have become more and more complex. And I can even remember, and I think of myself as a young man. It's not true anymore, but I keep thinking I am. And and I, I keep harking back to 
you know, when I, I could replace tires, I could replace wheels, I could, I even in my engineering days fitted, um, uh, you know, but partly re retimed an engine and fitted or a gasket. Put a new clutch in. Yeah, you could do that stuff. No. And and with a modern car, you know, they're highly efficient and they're designed to be highly efficient. They're they're put together by robots in enormous factories. And uh, you open the bonnet, you, you can't even quite recognize where the engine is. No. No. <laughs> so it, buildings are kind of the same. But buildings, a long time ago, there was a boiler and a couple of pumps. And, you know, a, a school janitor could control it manually. Um, and, and there might be a time switch somewhere, maybe, um, but it was all a bit hand to mouth. And and that is a million miles away now. Schools are being handed over with uh, very complex BMS systems, heat pumps all over the place, photograph, you know, uh, PV panels. So uh, technically, in electrical terms, they're becoming complex systems. You know, you may think you've isolated it, but you haven't because there's a second source of power coming into the system. So the level of professionalism you need to safely maintain and operate the buildings has gone through the roof. It's kind of unrecognizable. And I think that has created an industry, you know, for all, for all not, not for the wrong reasons, I think probably for the right reasons, it's created an industry um, to support these complex buildings that are more efficient and more effective than they used to be. Um, you know, we have much higher standards indoors in schools now with um, much higher you know, lighting standards, um, acoustic standards. Um, and, but all of that comes at a bit of a price. You know, the, the buildings have become quite um, technical. I looked at a, um, I've done an energy survey for an organisation. It must have been two years ago now because I haven't been out since... <laughs> during lockdown yeah. and such but it was about two years ago and i said to the guys on site it was a professional as you say tier one fm company i said can you tell me the manufacturer of the bms and they said no i mean it's a bit of a strange strange answer so we looked at it and i couldn't tell what the bms but what they could say is it controls the heating it controls the air conditioning it controls the lighting look i control this light above me to just that individual light within the whole building. It did everything, but it couldn't tell me the manufacturer. And that's exactly what you're saying. The, the level of, um, you know, I lift my bonnet up in my car. All I've got is like a, a molded top now. Yeah. Where before you used to get all the, the you know, alternator, the battery. We've still got that underneath, but it's all covered. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, my son was, a, he was working in an MOT center and he said, we're not allowed to touch EVs. Oh, why is that? He said, well, you kill yourself because you're not trained. So yeah. we are, we have, yeah. we are getting, yeah. and yes, we are comparing it against the, the car world. <laughs> but yeah. the car world, you know, let's treat the car, let's treat the building as a car. But so that car has to be maintained. Okay. Mm -hmm. The building has to be maintained. We have to bring specialists. Yes, the FM are becoming, beginning to have a better, higher level, but we still need to rely on those specialists, don't we, to come in? It's important. It's yeah, we do. We do. And and the FM industry, I have to be careful sometimes what I say, particularly when I'm being recorded. <laughs> but, but the FM industry, whilst it is becoming highly uh, more specialised and professionalised, um, I think I think there are a, a, a large number of, of people in the sector who, who have come from... 
um, you know, a very wide range of backgrounds. So we, we've, yeah, yeah. we, it's not all engineers. There, there's a lot of um, soft services people who are yeah. extremely capable business leaders. But some of these things do take engineers and to 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 understand and appreciate and uh, and and to be suitably qualified to operate safely. Um, and and to you know be able to isolate things and know what they're doing. Um, and you know we we have some great systems and permits to work systems and all sorts of things to to protect people. But in the absence of knowing and understanding why those things are there, there's always a risk. That, that people aren't implementing them properly. Um, so I, I think I think there's there's a need to keep going and to continue to professionalize the the operational part. Now, whether you call it FM per se, but the the operation of buildings needs to continue to be professionalized um, if they're going to carry if they're going to be operated safely and to the fullness of their capability. Um, some really interesting numbers coming out of kind of UKGBC and, and other places that um, when we're looking to decarbonize, 80% of the buildings that exist or will exist in 2050 already exist. So, you know, we're, we're, we're as, as an industry, we're going to have to really work out how we're going to squeeze these buildings and sort of change them. Uh, as much as we can to to become um, net zero or carbon neutral. Um, you know, car carbon neutral would be a good start. Net zero is kind of what we're aiming for, um, but some of that's going to be going to be tough, and it's it's going to be. You quite said it's eighty percent of the buildings. Yeah, built. yeah. The number. I mean, it's very rough, but eighty yeah, percent yeah. of the buildings in twenty fifty are already here, and um, you know, I, th I think. There's also going to be more and more pressure, rather than just knocking stuff down and building new, highly efficient buildings. I think the embodied carbon piece is going to become something of um, a focus as well. And it's more likely that we're going to be um, refurbishing buildings, at least maintaining large elements of structure and and Re refurbishing to a greater degree or lesser degree a lot more than than we have in the past. I think developers and planners and, and investors are going to be looking for slightly more imaginative solutions to reduce carbon emissions in whatever projects they're involved with. It's going to be quite, quite a... So we've got the 80%. We've got the 20%, which is going to be one of my next questions, actually. So we've got this 20%. We're, some of the stuff we've been talking about is all new build, all the new stuff that's coming in regarding lifting that bonnet up. And, you know, there's, as you say, um, I wouldn't have put a percentage on it, but there's still going to be a percentage of buildings that have got that old system. And I'm still seeing old trend systems, old satchel systems. I'm still seeing buildings without BMS in. Mm. Um, so what, you know, have you got any thoughts of, you know, what we're going to do from FM point of view, is that retrofit time? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I you know we're starting to receive, because many of the buildings that BAM FM look after are, are, are old, much older buildings. They're not all necessarily new BAM buildings. Certainly yeah. not. Um, most of them actually are, are older um, estate. And we're starting to get these questions coming through now from, Occup occupants, owners, 
um, you know, sometimes these are tenants with landlords, you know, the, the real wide variety of, of um, customers that we have. And, and we're getting these questions through about um, a kind of roadmap to, to reducing carbon. And I think, you know, first off, it's not about a single project. It's it's multiple projects that are all like stepping stones in in a direction. I think that that's probably the easiest kind of analogy I've got to it, um, because it, it, you can't just um, design one project and have solved it. it. It's going to be more complex than that for most customers because there's lots of little bits of the jigsaw that need put in place, and and to do it in one fell swoop would be enormously disruptive and enormously expensive. So they already have um, some components that are newer than others, some of them are the opposite, older than others, and they've already got an investment plan. So it, by using that investment plan wisely, we can probably make these steps along the stepping stones reasonably well and it will change building by building. There's not one solution everywhere. It'll change customer to customer, location to location. Um, it, so it will be it will become quite specialised. But I, I, the first issue is, well, what could that plan look like? And I think the first priority is about um, getting some data because we did speak about this briefly, Paul, when we were on the stand, but um, it's kind of catastrophic. <laughs> and I, I, don't, I don't even think that's too mild. Actually, actually no, that probably is too mild. But the, the, the information that a lot of occupiers and owners have about energy performance tends to only be their bills. And if, if you drove a car and the only evidence you had about how you were driving it was the receipt when you filled it up every 600 miles, that would be pretty appalling. <laughs> say, well, what, what speed were you going and how many miles have you done? You've got no information, not how a thing. How long were you in the car? How long, how long, were, you the car? <laughs> yeah. how long were your journeys? That's right. That's Doesn't... right. All they have is the receipt mm. for what they've bought in a month or maybe uh, less frequent than that. And, and what we find is sometimes those receipts aren't accurate. They're estimated. Not, yeah, yeah. Or there's some differences yeah. in them. You know, we had a problem with the meter that week or, yeah. you know, it's a it's, nightmare. It's catastrophic. Yeah. And, you know, if, 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 if we're going to try and have sensible decision making, then we need some information to do that from, yeah. at, at least a little. Um, and what we've got is, is enormously poor. Now, nobody is to blame for that. But once you know it, then you need to do something about it. And, and, and it is actually extremely simple um, for most customers to get at least half hour electricity data. And um, that's not terribly difficult. And, you know, it's not terribly difficult or expensive to get half hour gas data, you know, from a, a pulse meter or, or whatever mm -hmm. connected to a, a, a gas meter. And, and from there, actually, if, you, if, if individual buildings warrant it, you can monitor submeters as well and things like this. You can monitor heat, heat meters and heat distribution. None of this is beyond the wit of man and none of it is very expensive. And then you can start gathering some data. And once you've got data, you can make some great decisions. And I maybe told you about uh, the first time we turned on some half hour EMR stuff 
and um, we, we just about fell off our chairs um, when, I, and I called it Night at the Museum, which That's is probably right. probably copyright <laughs> by someone in Hollywood, but I, I still call it that. Not in the um, energy so, field, I don't think it is. <laughs> no, maybe not. But genuinely, we were looking at some school energy half-hour data, and we could see things coming on in the middle of the night that were completely unexplainable. They, they were, it was just bizarre. And, and we never knew. Before that, we got monthly data, manual meter readings and bills, and everything followed a, a seasonal pattern and we were reasonably happy. But when you got the half-hour data, you suddenly saw reality. It was like putting on glasses for the first time and being able to see the words on a page. Amazing. And, and we were able to actually go and investigate and, and deal with a whole lot of wastage, which was coming from, uh, the, one example was some ovens that were coming on because the time clock was set as on, but it was set at zero, 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 zero. So at midnight, the oven came on. And after an hour or two, something, it went off. And in the morning, it was cool. So no one ever knew this had been happening for years. And it would have carried on happening because nobody knew. But we found out, we investigated, we found out. We had water meters turning in the middle of the night because um, a rainwater harvesting system had a fault in it. And it was it was going to over uh, overflow when it filled to a certain level and we were able to fix that so having the data suddenly told us everything and and we, we were able without even spending much money we were able to make some quite considerable cumulative energy savings immediately not not really you know these were just corrective costs they weren't new plant and equipment just correcting some of the settings and things and and that that information's valuable but then once you've got rid of this easy stuff and, and bms is all over that you know bms time clock settings all this stuff all over that once once you've looked at your operational efficiencies then we could start targeting things like and and this is back to the the kind of the idea of the roadmap so the first thing is the data the second thing is trying to identify energy reduction um before you start necessarily jumping onto energy generation from PVs or wind turbines and this kind of thing. And energy reduction is, um, you know, wh wh something we've, we've had good practice at for a long time. You know, we know how to be efficient with energy because we've been trying it out, not for carbon sake, but for economics for a long time. But now some of the projects that were less economical are becoming worthwhile either because the cost cost of energy keeps going up that some of the technology price is coming down but also uh because the carbon is is you know is another point of focus so we're seeing led as as a bit of a no-brainer that's been a bit of a no-brainer for a while but where run hours were a bit more limited then led sometimes had a slightly longer payback period so in a police headquarters with 24-7 operation, LED was an absolute no-brainer. Lots of car parks, no-brainer. Yeah. But in schools and colleges, it was sometimes a wee bit harder because the run hours are shorter, the term time is shorter maybe. Um, suddenly, economics is making that possible, but, but also the green target is making that a lot more applicable. And, and for the first time, we've even come across... Um, a site where we're replacing LED with LED. So the first generation of LED, they're starting to burn out now because they've done their 50,000 hours 
and the the diodes are starting to pop. So that's quite an interesting. Yeah, that um, is very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't think LED... I'd see that in my lifetime. No, no. Well, it's happening. It's incredible. Yeah. And yeah. and actually, the LED technology has come on a long way itself. Yeah. So it's become more efficient. It much more efficient, and and the quality of light is fabulous. It's really yeah. bright, clean light. It's 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 really great. Um, and, and highly controllable. You know, you can dim it down on a straight line to kind of zero rather than have that ballast loss and everything like this. It's it's so controllable. It's it's fantastic. But they're using so, it on field of play now, aren't they? Yeah. On stadiums. It's, it's yes. working very successful now in stadiums. Yep, yep. So they and can the, direct it and, and it travels. It never used to yep. travel, did it, because of lenses and things. That's right. That's right. So the, using it at football stadiums and even at airports now, I think the Civil Aviation Authority are giving permission to use it on airside uh, operations as well, which is right. um, also yeah. something reasonably new. So um, LED is a bit of a no-brainer. And it, in fact, in terms of well-being for people inside the building, there's the controllability, like you were saying at the start there, you can actually pull out a device and control an individual light fitting Um absolutely fabulous um so there's there's lots of things we could do to reduce and then we, we need to start thinking about trying to decarbonize heat and and maybe try generating power on sites with um solar panels and things like this and um de decarbonizing heat's really interesting uh, i think there's a long way to go with that and in industry i hear occasionally people um suggesting we just throw a heat pump in and take some boilers out throw in the heat pump but it's not quite as simple as that the the operating temperatures of heat pumps are quite well i'll start that again the efficient operating parameters of heat pumps are um a lot lower than than um low pressure hot water boilers so the the flow of of that heating medium, if that's low pressure or water, um, to radiators and heat emitters, convectors and things is is quite different um, unless unless that temperature can be brought up. And I think efficiently it's it's hard to do that right now. Um, so we have to think about when we're thinking about these heat pumps, we probably have to think about much larger convector radiator surfaces and maybe larger bore pipes to get a higher uh, flow rate um to them and that starts to get more and more disruptive and you know it's not just about a couple of heat pumps replacing the boiler um well, i've just installed be... an infrared heater in ah, my okay. bathroom so okay. i've taken a, a three kilowatt heater out and i've put in a 300 watt pitcher yeah which has been okay. which is infrared it's not perfect it takes the heat away but it i think that is a technology that I think is around the corner. It will evolve. Mm. LEDs evolved. The BMS system evolved. You know, you know, we've yeah. come miles from them days when, mm. you know, no one had a BMS and everyone's got BMS, yeah. even houses now. Yeah. Um, so it will evolve. Um, hydrogen's around the corner, possibly. We've got more. You know, I've heard some stories recently where hydrogen is quite likely to replace existing gases and things. So the technologies. We're on this journey, aren't we, towards all this new resource of, of energy coming forward? Yeah, yeah. And I, th I think one of the other things that's interesting about it, Paul, is effectively what we're doing is electrifying everything. And, and yeah. you know, maybe, maybe that's 
when I reflect sometimes in my darker moments or lighter moments, I kind of think, well, well of course it is, because electricity is energy in its purest form. You know, what, what we burn from gas and fossil fuel is just stored energy in a, in a chemical form one way or the other. But, but electricity in its purest form is exactly, it's, it, it is energy and it, you know, pure and simple. And, and, you know, we, we have electric vehicles coming out, which are going to be sort of counter to our idea of reducing energy demand. Some of our buildings are actually going to start connecting EVs outside them and our, our demand is going to go up. Our demand for electricity to replace heating is going to go through the roof to you know fuel all these cars, visitors' cars and, and, and staff cars and all this kind of thing. That's going to go through the roof. So actually our, our energy demand keeps going up. Um, it's just where, where that's coming from. And and it's it's again, it kind of comes full circle, I suppose, that this half-hour data that we talked about at the start will become quite critical as well because. It's not just about how much energy we use, but when we use energy. And right now, there's a, a pattern that energy um, consumption is highest you know, across a nation, most nations, in the late afternoon and early evening, as everybody turns on their lights and they go home and they turn the kettles and their ovens on and all this stuff. And that puts the grids you know, in most of the Western um, developed nations, if you like, uh, puts the grid under a lot of pressure. And if we can move some of that demand around the place and be a bit more um, flexible in when we're moving, or sorry, when we're consuming, that will take a lot of pressure back off the grid, which will allow us to be using more total energy um, for heating and driving our cars. Um, so I think bat battery storage is going to become another interesting topic where um, we just shift our, our load around and, and we're going to start, I think, quite soon playing all kinds of interesting games about charging a battery on a Sunday. You might actually get paid to do that. Yeah. And then you'll use you'll store that and use some of it on Monday afternoon when the price of electricity is extremely high. You'll just offset it and you'll you'll remove your peak by using your own battery power. This kind of thing will become more and more normal. Um, the only um, kind of blocker to that right now is just the price. The price of batteries is a bit high. Exactly. <laughs> bit Everything starts off high. It will come down. Yeah, yeah. Definitely yeah. come down. Reid, some of the things you've been saying today, you've been talking about BMS, you've been talking about batteries now and all the different technologies that are there. You haven't touched on people. And I would have thought from in the FM world, people are one of the biggest energy users. And, you know, it's, it's treating the behaviour and... Is the FM world getting involved with that side of it and, and working with the people in the building to reduce energy? I think I think there is, and, and there probably has been for a while, um, a kind of um, a kind of light touch on that, where we, we've tried to raise awareness, you know, with say poster campaigns and this kind of thing. But I think even now, um, the FM sector sees those occupants as its customers. And it tends, the customers have a high expectation. You know, quite often you'll hear stories about someone in a T-shirt in December in their office saying, well, I'm a bit cold. Someone should turn the heating up. <laughs> well, it is December. Maybe you should put a cardigan on. Or something. But 
the FM sector sees the occupants um, very much like customers. And I think, I think it, probably as an industry, we've been treading on eggshells a little bit, you know, before we start going back to the customers and saying, hey, you, um, actually, you should have a cardigan on in the winter. Um, you know, but people just expect the building to cope and the FM behind it kind of making it cope. So for the I, benefit of the audience today, Reedy's wearing a cardigan. I am. I am. <laughs> <laughs> and so, his interviewer is wearing a T-shirt, but hey, we won't go there, yeah? <laughs> Well, I'm in Scotland. It's freezing. Yeah, I'm in London, <laughs> just outside London. It's it's red hot down here today. <laughs> so I think I think there's probably more to do. Um, what's what's also interesting uh, is we're going to start, I think, in the next few years, looking a little bit more at um, scope three emissions. So when we're talking about the greenhouse gas protocol and all the scientific. Um, you know measurements. Then scope one is is you know what what you burn in doing your undertaking your business activity. Um, to, the type two is the sort of energy you buy from say the power grid when you know they've got a chimney somewhere else, but they've supplied you with power that you use directly. And scope three is kind of interesting. It's where your staff use their cars to come to work, and and your suppliers emit carbon to deliver services to you. And, there's an interesting example where in the catering industry, uh, there's a lot of meat in the catering industry, and we all are probably aware of the methane and the carbon that's associated with meat. So we started looking at a bit of research with Edinburgh University to see, well, um, you know, how much of our ingredients in a, in a menu cycle, how much of these ingredients are, are contributing to carbon emissions and scope three? And we, we have been able to do some calculations and we say, well, do you know what? If we cut meat out, that, that would be quite a good thing. So we then engage with occupants and we say, do you know what? If, if you had on a different menu and you're our customer, you know, in a real, in a retail kind of way, you're, you're actually the real customer here, um, not a corporate, but a kind of business to proper customer. Um, if we were to take out the meat, you know, would you support that? And lots of people actually say, yes, you know, there's more and more, awareness of these issues and more and more people are quite happy with a more of a vegetarian selection that kind of thing so that's very good however we very quickly discovered that the catering industry goes okay well we're not of any meat but we're going to have a lot more vegetables and fruit and stuff and that stuff often arrives frozen and actually frozen produce is almost as bad as the meat and, and, and it's also coming from all over the world. You know, as soon as it's frozen, well, it can come from South Africa and it can come from New Zealand and all over the place. And actually, the carbon intensity of frozen food is quite poor too. So what we're finding is and the next stage is to say, well, okay, we've come away from the meat, but to what degree can we reduce the frozen component that we're getting and have more fresh, fresh produce? And what's good about that, it's got fewer food miles, it's not frozen with that intense carbon um, added to it. You don't have to keep it frozen when you've received it, but also you tend to then be buying more locally, which has got a much yeah. better yeah. social community community piece. So yeah. um, it's it's a sort of double benefit, um, but an interesting piece where actually the customer um, has engaged with us. Um, in in the examples that we've been kind of um, investigating, 
and and they've 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 engaged very positively. And and I guess when we've got COP twenty six just happened, and you know the the we're dealing with a generation who are more and more aware of the problem of climate change. Then then, despite what I was saying a moment or two ago about people wearing t-shirts in offices, I think that conversation is getting easier. Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah. Um, so, Reid, absolutely some really valuable um, insights there to what's happening in the FM world and, and specifically from you individually. So it's come to that time um, where I'm going to ask you that question of mine, <laughs> which I like to put my uh, interviews on the spot. And I, I really would like to know, is there anything that you can give back to our industry today as a takeaway for our energy experts around the world? Well, yeah, we can, I, um, hear, we can hear the sirens in the background. <laughs> yes. Well, I can. <laughs> that may See not come out on the end. <laughs> I think, I think um, there's probably, you know, if I bo boiled it all back down to the starting block, and and it, it, whether you know whether it's terribly obvious or whether it's not, it, it's hard to tell. But I think. Actually having good data is, is the absolute foundation of making any improvement. And, and it's either the, the basis of identifying what improvement you're wanting to make, but it's also evidence that you've made it. Because later on, you can show the saving, you can show the benefit. And I think... I think that cannot be underestimated from the point of view of getting started, but keeping going. Because when somebody needs to get started, they, they've got the data to prove what they want to do. And once you're on the journey, you can also use that data to come back to your management or your peers or whoever and say, look, look what we've done. And to actually measure the improvement and prove to people it's working, you can then maintain the momentum. So. It's not, it's maybe not very profound, but I think, um, I think without it, we're lost, you know, without it, we're just blind and you, you, you don't know if you're progressing, you don't know, you don't know what you're doing. Um, so the, the, the data and um, that energy information right from the start, I think is the um, real gold dust. Um, without which, we're, yeah, we're just uh, sort of running around in circles. I think legislation is starting to drive that now with SEPRA okay. and forcing organisations to produce their, their scope one and scopes two mm. data there and then, you know, um, and going into scope three. We're not seeing so much of a push. I'm glad you mentioned the scope three. That is starting to trigger now. I've, I heard something like um, from a customer wanting... He needed support because his customers said they needed that scope-free information, right, okay. which was quite interesting. Mm. But we are seeing that. The only issue that I'm seeing there is that it's, the, that's achieving it for the major energy users, but it's the SME world, I think, are going to struggle with all this at the moment. And we really need, you know, the, the smart metering programs need to be regenerated. We need to be, um, you know, put back on track. They've gone off. The, the wheels have fallen off, basically, I think, on the on that side of it. We need that really needs a focus. And we need the government and legislation needs to put focus into the SME world, you know, mm -hmm. to bring everyone on the same playing field. You know, I stand up 
on a regular basis. And I stay, say from a, from a corner shop to an office block and everything in between. They are where we need to be focusing. Great rhyme, but we're not doing the corner shops, you know, mm. and they're the areas that, you know, there's a higher percentage of businesses are in that sector in the SME, which mm. it's not the likes of yourself, you know, BAM would go in and yeah. look at the SME world, but that they still need to be supported. They still need that level of, mm. of um, support carried out on them. In my, in my, in yeah. my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And they're kind of harder to reach Yeah, on a business to business um, front. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. And it um, isn't there, you know, there's the, uh, the return on investment for them to do that isn't really there. You know, they're going to have some, they need some form of government uh, support grants or whatever it is funding mm -hmm. uh, to help yeah. them get through to that stage. But we need to focus in those areas. It's a, it's a must. So, Reid, um, great answer um, for the uh, the takeaway. Thank you very much for that. And it's been a real privilege. And I'm really glad I dragged you on the stand and uh, tied the uh, the handcuffs around you and wouldn't let you off until you sort of give in to me um, regarding coming on my podcast. So thank you very much. <laughs> really appreciate your time today. Not at all. It's been my pleasure, Paul. Thank you. Thank you. And Reid, you and your family, please be safe in these times. Thank you very much. And you, Paul. Thank you.